Hey friend, thanks for listening to the Fixate Phoenix podcast. We are praying that you are blessed by this week's message. If you would like to partner with the future of Fixate, you can visit fixatephx.com slash give. That we could gather in this place this morning, gather in this place and um, seek your face and seek your heart. So, Father, regardless what's going on outside of these walls, what's going on this last week, the week ahead of us, this afternoon, the to-do list, the laundry, the lunch plans, whatever it is, God, we're silent today. We're present today. We're still today. And from that place, we know that you've said if we're still, we will know you're God. So, Father, today we press into you deeply to be formed by you. In Jesus' name, and the church said. Amen. We've been in a series on James. Um, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on the introduction of it because I have for the last four weeks and we're going forever on James. It feels like not really, but it's going to be a long time. So just buckle up with your Bible seatbelts. But, uh, but James I'm really excited about because really, in my, in my opinion, um, the contour of his life is just is, is one that really speaks to me. Um, somebody who was a doubter and a skeptic for most of Jesus' existence was his half-brother, um, if you know who he is uh, in depth. He's Jesus' half-brother, but doesn't actually believe in Jesus till post-resurrection. Then, as soon as he starts believing in Jesus, starts to become a core leader in the Church of Jerusalem. And many believe, after the Church of Jerusalem's heavy expansion, as Peter and John and some of the other apostles go out, that really James assumes the leadership of the first believers, and it wasn't Christian at the time, we know that in, Act, in the book of Acts it says later on in the church of Antioch the term Christian was first used. James is literally leaving the first practicers of the way of Jesus on the face of the earth and he's not just leading them through crazy expansion, he's leading them through trial. And if you know anything about the book, that's what I love about it is because I think for a lot of us what we see... Uh, a lot of the times when we follow Jesus today, is that typically the gospel is we, we, we focus on the really like, you know, cool, comfortable, and like, man, that makes me feel better parts. But then when it starts facing trial, we find out, you know, what we really believe. And that's James's story. What you see about the trial is not only does he step in and there's crazy growth and expansion, but it's funny because most of us, we think that the arc of, of, of a believer is always like this. James's is like this. And it's like, and I, I guarantee as a pastor and as a leader, he probably thought like, it can't get much worse than this. And it's like, oh, it's worse. It's like, oh, it can't get worse than my entire church starving and me having to write letters asking for help to send an offering. Like every time I'm preaching, I'm preaching to people about faith when they don't even have food to eat. Like, oh, it can't get much worse than persecution and torture and the people in my church being thrown in prison. Oh, it can get worse. I can get martyred. That's not a joke. I shouldn't have joked about that. But you get the picture. I mean, this, this guy literally led through seasons in which all of us would heavily, heavily have been a skeptic of, man, am I, is this, doesn't really feel like, you know, that real like, mm, yes, God. 
And that's why we've been studying this book, because what we do know is that by the date of his death and kind of backdating it is that this is the first book of the New Testament. Not only is it the first book of the New Testament, but really before that day and time, there's not a whole lot of books they're studying besides the, the, the Old Testament Torah. And so what you see is he gleans a lot from Jesus's life and ministry, kind of the Sermon on the Mount, as well as the Proverbs and the Psalms. And he's kind of bleeding them all together into this formation-minded approach. And it is just, once again, an elegant letter, my favorite in all of the Bible. Let's read today. And if you know, we've been going through um, anywhere from, well, it's funny, I'm going to say, anywhere from eight to ten verses a week. But the first week, we only did one verse. And it was good, in my opinion. But if you didn't like it, not my problem. Um, but today we're going to be focusing on, on chapter 1, verses 21 through verses 27. These are some really famous um, sayings that go on in this passage. But today I'm titling James part 4, chapters 1, 21 through verse 27. The title is The Geometry of Godliness. The Geometry of Godliness. I was terrible at math. Still am good with numbers. I'll kill anybody in multiplication, like up to 12, obviously. Not a psycho. <laughs> People are like, I'm good at my times tables over 12. Well, you're weird. No, I'm kidding. It's terrible. Um, but geometry is the study of the shape of shapes and relative arrangements of the parts of something. Today, the shape that we're studying is the outline of a life of godliness, focused on the lens that is given to us. In the book of James, chapter 1. There's a really, uh, the reason I called it this, I'm not going to lie, is because at the very end of this reading of the passage, there's an equation that I'm going to give you that I believe, once again, from this um, text is an outline of the geometry of godliness. Let's read. Therefore, verse 21, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourself doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he is. Pause. We're going to add a ton of context, all right? Many of us read this and we're like, how do you look in a mirror, walk away, and forget what you look like? Well, when you, if you were to take it back 2,000 years ago, this statement actually makes a ton of sense. Why? Because reflective mirrors didn't exist back then. The only mirrors that they had were actually polished stones. Typically, these polished stones were either obsidian, silver, or bronze they didn't have reflective glass in which everybody had. They would polish stones, polish stones, polish stones. And if you notice what I said, obsidian, silver, and bronze, those are expensive metals. What am I saying? Really, the only people who could see their reflection often were extremely affluent people. So think about this, right? You're somebody who doesn't have a ton of wealth, and you only might see yourself once a year or two in a mirror or like if you were at a place of water where you could look down. How many of you guys know, guys in here, like I know there's a lot of college guys who maybe don't grow as much facial hair as quick, but if you take like a week or two and you look down at yourself and you're like, dang, I look like this? 
Like, what, what he's essentially saying is he's introducing this thought that all these people have felt before. All these people have felt the fact that they go weeks or even months without looking in the mirror, and then when they see themselves, they're like, dang, that's me? And it's interesting because he's saying, listen, don't look into the perfect law of God and forget about it. Look and ponder upon it. And let's continue to read because there's some more layers to this story. Verse 25. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. I love that language. Effectual doer. Having an effect That comes from doing. This man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained by the world. Another huge cultural context. There was an incredible book I read called Dominion. By, uh, by an author by the name of Tom Holland. In the book, he actually talks about, listen to this, this is wild. He talks about how the, the foundation of government welfare actually came from the early church. What was happening is the Roman Empire, when the church blew up in its expansion, what was happening is that people were literally, the people were getting saved, but it wasn't the elitists that were getting saved. It was the poor, the orphans, the widows, it was the people who were overlooked, marginalized, the sick, the destitute. And what was happening is they were going and bandaging, giving them food, giving them shelter, giving them provision, and they were becoming saved because they're like, nobody's ever treated me like this in my entire life. Now, this is where it gets crazy, okay? I'm gonna add some deep historical context so you understand. When, when the church started to expand rapidly, is because the web, all of these Christians are banding together in terms of taking in the destitute, taking care of the needs of others, caring for the neighbor. And Rome, the Roman government literally takes notice of it. And they're looking and saying, wait a second, there's a level of an ability, if this continues to spread, where there's potential for insurrection just because of the sheer amount of people who are marginalized in our kingdom that can be reached by the gospel by people who live this way. So what does Rome do? They institute the first government order of social welfare for people who are less than. But they only did it. This is crazy. Like I said, it's in a book, Dominion by Tom Holland. They only did it because they looked and they're like, if we don't do it, the Christians might take over our world. Think about that. The revolution was, I will care for people in such a profound way, sacrifice in such a profound way, that the conversion rate of those who are marginalized, destitute. So when we read this and we're like, okay, well, okay, well, that means I need to give to orphans and to widows. No, what he's actually saying is he's laying the blueprint for what their church expansion was. Find the ones who need compassion and generosity and exercise it. And it's a wild story that actually when you trace kind of government welfare systems, they all trace back to the first one was Rome. And that first one came from the fact that the the Christians were taking ownership. In Rome at that time, and I'm forgetting the exact name of the place, but if you had an unwanted baby, you could just take it to this place, set it down and leave it. And the Christians were literally well known for going to that place and any baby that was left would then be adopted into a family and into the church. So think about this. When he says care for the widows 
and care for the orphans, there are pictures attached to that. But then that last challenge, and keep yourself unstained. Man, that's a tough one to start to kind of chew on. Like, because I'm not going to lie, all of us in here, if I looked at you and said, hey, are you unstained? Like, we'd be like, eh, I probably got some stains there. How many of you guys stain every bit of your clothing whenever you eat anything? Is that just me? Okay. How many of you guys don't buy white at all just because you know? <laughs> Amen. Jarrell, that's right. All right, David. Dang. Everybody else is lying. I'm like, I literally, if I'm going out to dinner and there's a chance, I'm just like, okay, dark clothes. But here's the deal. From this, I feel like I, I kind of developed this, uh, this equation from this of the geometry of godliness. So if you would, can you, you throw that up there already? Ethan, man, you are on it today, dog. Let's read really quick. And if you notice the verses, the reason I did that is because this is kind of drawn from the text. So we've got humble hearing, which was found in verses 21 and 23, plus effective doing, which is found in verse 25, multiplied by compassion and generosity equals unstained living. I'm going to read this again because I want this to kind of sink in because we're going to kind of focus on these elements for the next 20 or so minutes. Humble hearing plus effective doing. Now, if you notice, those things together have an, an additive property. If you add those things together, there's a quantity that goes up. But if you want to multiply the hearing and the doing by compassion and generosity, there's exponential growth and ability to get to that unstained realm. What do I mean by that? I know a lot of people who hear and do, but when they really assess their lives through the lens of, do I practice compassion and generosity through that widow's and orphan's lens? It's like, wait a second, I might be a little stained there. And so today, this is the geometry of godliness we're talking about. Humble hearing, effective doing, Multiplied by compassion and generosity equals unstained living. So right now, for my remainder of the time, I want to give you this thought. How, three things on how this equation gets the stains out. Because I think for a lot of us, when we come to church, we, we, we don't really verbalize the fact that we're hoping that there's like this, this upgrade in our spirituality, our walk, or just our faith in general. And really at the end of the day when we sit back, it's like, okay, God, am I more stained or less stained? Because we're always keenly aware of seasons or times when we're more stained. When things it feels like are backing up, our, our impulsive uh, outbursts or our short-sightedness or our just lack of patience or self-control. We're, we're aware of these things, but how much more are we aware of the things that we're not aware of that everybody else says and says, hey, you spilled that on your shirt. And that's the thing about getting close to God. Because all of us have had a stain that we don't see, and that's really what godliness is, is getting so close to God that he says, hey, you got a little stain there. Let me take care of that for you. And so today what I want to challenge us all on is how we live a life that is unstained. So the first thing is this, and we're functionally, functioning around that kind of that first part of the equation. Humility is God's character attribute of choice to rid man of wickedness and filthiness. If your hearing is not producing humility, you will become an unhealthy 
doer. If you will not receive the words of others, there will come a time you stop receiving the words of God. A humble heart check is how well you listen to others, how quickly you apply the truth of God's word, no matter the cost of comfort or convenience. He's going to leave that on the screen, but I'm going to jump around with some thoughts here. James 1, 21 and 22, remember where we started. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. In humility, receive the word that is implanted. Jesus actually said it best in Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Uh, last year at this time, um, we, I mentioned this earlier, which if you call Fixate your home church and you attend regularly, I really hope that you come to a renewal room. Uh, three times a week we gather with worship, prayer, and repentance. Uh, Tuesday, 6 a.m. to 7 a.m., or 6.15, 7.15. Wednesday, 12 to 1 p.m., and Thursday, 8.30 to 9.30 at night. And in these settings, um, it's pretty common for people from all walks or spiritual backgrounds to show up. Uh, we've learned that uh, pretty early on. But last year, there was a guy, um, and I was leading the meeting, and as I was leading the meeting in the front, um, I, was, I was getting ready, and there, it, was a, it was a packed room that day. There was maybe 100, 120 of us, and this guy walks up to me. I've never seen him in my life, stands right next to me and says, hey, I have a word for the room. Now, typically, that's a red flag for me. Why? Because if I've never even met you and you want to grab a microphone, not only that, I looked down bare feet. I was like, Ugh. like bare feet Christians, they're great people. Just like in the worship setting, just maybe put some shoes on. You can wear thongs even. I don't care. Just exposed toes and ankles. Come on. No, I'm kidding. Some people are like, this is holy ground though. Anyway, um, but I like look at him and I'm like, hey man, like, he's like, hey man, I have a word to share. And I'm like, hi, probably not going to work today. He looks at me, he says, okay. Walks to the back of the room. Next week, I'm in the service and uh, another packed room and it's going great. And all of a sudden I hear somebody like 10 rows back just yelling words. And I don't even remember what he said because I turned around and looked and I'm like, that's the barefoot bandit. And he's just, and, and it, what he said was good, but the week before he'd asked me permission, and this week he didn't ask me, he just did it. And immediately in my mind, I'm like, okay, here we go. Like, well, we'll have a conversation after this. And so I remember going up to him afterwards, and I pull him aside, and I think some of you guys are like, oh, where's this going to go, brass knuckles pastor guy? And, and I pull him aside, and I'm like, hey, man, let me give you my take from an outsider perspective. Last week you asked me to speak, I said no. So this week, instead of asking me, you thought you would get a no again, you just thought, well, God's telling me so ultimately. And believe it or not, in, in church and in the spiritual realm a lot of the times, for some reason the Jesus card is the ultimate card. And so I remember I said, you know, man, I'll be honest, like, we're just not, we're, we're in a spot where we really do value uh, people who speak um, in corporate settings, us knowing their character, knowing their heart, back to First and Second Timothy and Titus. And, you know, I, I just never want to give the microphone to people that I don't know and cannot attest the godliness that they have. And he looked at me, I'll never forget this, and he said, I am so sorry that I did that. And he said, I, 
He said, there's no excuse. I, ex- I absolutely agree with what you're saying. I submit to what you're saying. And, you, and I want to thank you for coming to me. And he said, it'll never happen again. For the next four months, he started showing up twice a week. And I never had an issue again. Not only did I not have an issue again, but he helped and served. And towards the end of his time here, we went out to eat together. And he was going on a mission trip. And I literally said, our church will give to you and support you. Now, where did that start? Me thinking that this person wasn't going to be able to receive based off of what they did. But now I'm preaching a sermon on humility. And I'm talking about a guy who I would say made, stepped out of line a little bit. But actually taught me like, man, I hope I'm as humble as that one day. That if somebody comes to me, I immediately can apologize. Immediately can say I'm sorry immediately can be like, you know what? Yeah, that was out of line. And I want to encourage you today. See, there's a lot of us that hear from God, but don't have a humility from God. And what's extremely sad to me is this, is if I had a nickel for every mature believer who fails the test of humility, we would have already bought this building. Why? Because in this day and age, to be humble and receive from anybody other than God in the moment that he speaks to us from a dove that landed on our shoulder, that whispered in our ear in Arabic. (sighs) What am I saying? Your humility isn't just your submission to God. Your humility is your submission also to your fellow man. Would those around you say you're humble? Would those around you say that you hear well. Because I want to say this to you today, hearing is not just the baseline, it's humble hearing. Second thing is this. The blessing comes from the assessment of if what you're doing is effective. If you were to assess your habits of hearing and how effective your doing is from those habits... Would it show one who is abiding in the vine and producing a fruit that remains and comes forth in all seasons? Effective doing is looking at the mirror and not blocking the view of our risen self by focusing on the imperfections of the fallen self that has not been fully sanctified yet. The blessing comes in the doing and the ordinary acts of holiness you're willing to believe pays compound interest. Ordinary acts, ordinary acts of holiness that pay compound interest. Remember James 125, he's going to leave that up there, but I'm just going to refresh your memory. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. Somebody whose their doing has an effect on those around them. This man will be blessed in all he does. If I were to say all of you, hey, how many of us want to be blessed in here? Hopefully all of us would raise our hand. Now, how many of us, if I was like, all right, now how, let's, how many of us want to be effectual doers? It's like, well, well, can you break that down for me in seven easy bullet points that I can apply to my everyday being? But the reason I say that, and we're going to go back to this thought, right? The mirror thought. Gazing into the perfect law of Christ intently, or looking at the face, and or one who does look at the look at the law and then forgets, as the person who looks in the mirror and forgets what they look like. Isn't it interesting? 
When we, when we think about that metaphor of mirrors, when we think about that metaphor, how there's so much meaning to it when you really break it down. Case in point, me and my wife recently, two weeks ago, went to the Phoenix Art Museum on one of our Sabbaths uh, on a Friday. When we were at the art museum, I'm going to butcher this lady's name, um, there was an exhibit there. And the exhibit was by a woman by the name of Yeo Kuasami. And it was an infinity mirror room. Now, for me as a guy, I'm like, okay, this is a cool exhibit. Like in an art museum, you walk around, there's cool pictures, a lot of cool history. I love the Western exhibits. But this room was like interesting because it, it, it kind of was like a black room with mirrors everywhere. And then they just hung Christmas, uh, Christmas lights from the ceiling and it was pitch black. So me and my wife, we walk into this room. And we walk in, and what's funny is this, I walk in the room, and as I'm walking, I have my hand on the wall, because it's like so, like, it's dark, but there's Christmas lights, but I'm surrounded by mirrors. I feel extremely exposed, and no no clue about my surroundings, and I'm walking with my hand on the wall, and I'm like, kind of walking, and the strands are hitting me, and there's, there's this person in front of me, and I start yelling, I start saying, hey man, I'm, I'm staying close to the wall, go to my right, and I'll stay to the left, and we'll keep going. So I'm walking, I'm walking, and I step to, I step to the left, and this person steps, to, to, steps right with me. Then I step to my right, and the person steps with me again. And finally, I'm like walking, I'm like, hey man, you gotta move the other way. You gotta move the other way. My wife's like, hey Micah, you're talking to yourself, you're in a mirror room. <laughs> and I'm like, I like look around, I'm like, there ain't no way that's a fake me. <laughs> Because all you can see is a shadow. It's a dark room. And I'm like, get out of my way. So what's hilarious is literally, I like don't believe her. So I like walk all the way forward. I'm like, I'm going to hit you. I'm going to, and then, <laughs> like, and then I realize I'm like, okay, I just need to get out of here. Cause I get what you're doing with this. You artists, but this is too weird for me. But man, those mirrors gave me a thought. How many of us are wanting other people to get out of our way and move because of what they're doing when really it's us? It is us that is affecting our walk. It is us that when we're gazing at the mirror, we're seeing imperfection and not the challenge to be resurrected. How many of us are walking through life and, and we're blaming everybody else? We're blaming God. We're blaming all the stuff. We're blaming the season. We're blaming the nation. We're blaming the fallen. We're blaming the political party. We're blaming this. We're blaming. And then all of a sudden at the end of the day, it's like, but how are you? How are you though? Because I believe a lot of us, if we were to assess ourselves, the reason we're not healthy and the reason we're not healing is because we've blocked our own health and we've blocked our own healing. And we have to make the choice to change the direction and to change the thinking in order to embrace that healing and that wholeness. And I say that to you today because I think for um, a lot of us, when we think about hearing doing, generosity, and compassion. We think that it's this laundry list. And then at the end is unstained, but really in parentheses, blessing. And this is what's sad about the American church in terms of the superficialism and consumeristic nature. All we want to hear about is, how do I do X, Y, and Z and get blessed? 
how do I do these seven things and there's a blessing attached? And I want to tell you this because this is, this is the thing about James's story. He does the X, Y, and Z persecution. X, Y, and Z starvation. X, Y, Z martyred. Hold on a second. Where's, where's the blessing though? Where's the blessing? I say this to you today because I believe God maybe is trying to reframe the narrative of what your walk is supposed to look like. See, for me, what I have found in my life is that I have come to enjoying the being and the doing with God so much more than the blessing that most of the time I don't even see the blessing until it's singled out for me because the blessing is the doing and the being. It's not what I hope it might produce for me. And I think for a lot of us, we're coming to God and saying, God, I will do these things as long as it produces this for me. And God, I think, wants to return and say, no, if you actually do these things, it will be so much more than you think it could do for you. You know, we started our church, Fixate, to restore the gaze of humanity back to its creator, to allow the creator to create once again. The reason we said that is because we believed that his creative ability as the original creator is better than our creative intent of our own lives. And what's sad today is you see so many people trying to carve out their own way, trying to make their own agenda, trying to do their own life. And God's saying, would you just trust me to create Because a life rooted in godliness, a life rooted in righteousness, a life rooted in kingdom-mindedness, there becomes an ability for me to create that is better than you could have ever created on your own. Do you actually believe that? My last thought today, number three. Hearing and doing should accelerate the growth of compassion and generosity in your life. The closer to God, the looser the grip and freer the heart. You cannot get unstained without hearing the word of God, doing the things of God, showing compassion in the world and practicing generosity for those in need. You will not have an unstained heart if you're not willing to apply a lifestyle of those stain blockers to what's been spilled already. The goal is not to be less stained. It is to be unstained. You know what I've noticed about stains in my own, um, in my clothing? (laughs) The longer the stain goes untreated, the more it sets into the fabric. The more it sets into the fabric, the harder it is to get out. To the point where washing and applying the bleach and applying the tide to go and applying all these stuff still leaves a little bit of an outline of residue. And there must be a practical ability to keep trying to take it out or to step into something new. And I say this to you today because I think for a lot of us, God is trying to bring hyper-awareness to stains in our heart. In which he's saying, listen, let's go back to the drawing board. Here, do, generous, compassion. And we're like, but I got these stains on my clothing. Here, do, 
generosity, compassion. Yeah, but have you seen how much I've spilled on myself? Here, do, generosity, compassion. Yeah, but I don't think I can get these out. You were never supposed to get them out. You can't get them out. And no matter how, whatever self-help doctrine, whatever you think the newest and greatest thing is, you can't get them out. He can. Hear, do, generosity, compassion, hear. And what you find is over the seasons and over the years and over the, I release the want of the blessing and I choose the bless or trusting that whatever he will give is better than anything I could have ever wanted in my origin state. From this place, what you'll find is if you're applying the stain blockers of hearing, doing, generosity, and compassion, there produces a day in time in the future where you look back and you look down and you realize you're not stained anymore. My final thought for you today. You want to know why people are skeptical of faith in Jesus? We've just been okay with stains. Stains of marriages that have higher divorce rates than the unreligious. Stains of faith that does not have habits and making it to church once a month is labeled as committed. Stains of if you have the mark of the beast or just the vax. Stains of calling out the specks of society while possessing the planks of political agenda and greed. The stains of pursuing personal well-being over the helping of our neighbors. Easily standing on the soapboxes of righteousness but willing to stay silent on the plights of injustice. I'm not throwing stones. Rather, today I'm handing out some magic erasers, some tied-to-go pens. Because to be truly unstained, we must become humble hearers and effective doers, generous and compassionate, and show a world that has accepted stains as normalcy that there is an unstained way. Stand to your feet. In closing, every week here, uh, we've been doing on Wednesday nights, um, on Wednesday nights we've been doing Practicing the Way, and the discipline that we're on for this month is on the practice and, and lifestyle of prayer. And so each week, and I will say this might go on for a, for a longer season, we've been reciting the Lord's Prayer with each other um, as we go into one final time of worship. So I want to encourage you, let's take a moment of stillness and quiet, and then I will lead us out as we recite the Lord's Prayer and worship one more time in closing. Let's take a second. Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, 
on earth.